Hey everybody, it is great to see you. So glad that you're here today and welcome to those of you joining us from our campuses and welcome to those of you watching online. Hey, uh, before we jump in today, I just wanna say thank you uh, to Pastor Brad Holmes. Uh, Brad was preaching over the last two weekends and just did a great job. I heard from a bunch of you just uh, how impacted, how encouraged, how challenged you were through his teaching. So Brad, wherever you are, thanks so much for jumping in and leading us well. Well, uh, today we are in, uh, I think it's part six of this series, Make It Real, a study of James. And so let me start with a question. Uh, do you ever uh, argue at your house, in your family? Yeah, me either. I just wondered, you know, if you guys did. Uh, yeah, so my wife, Katie, and I, we got five kids, and, uh, you know, our kids... They argue from time to time. And uh, I have some great memories of our kids arguing uh, when they were little, because it was so funny. Uh, I have a daughter named Lily, and uh, when our kids were tiny, nobody could make the L sound. And so it was, hey, Willie, and she'd get really mad. My name is not Willie, it's Willie. <laughs> I didn't call you Willie, I said Willie, and just round and round. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in a... I would say months long argument with one of my daughters over uh, the library. And it wasn't that she wanted to go to the library and we wouldn't take her. It wasn't that uh, she wasn't reading enough, you know, like, hey, less screen time, more reading. No, it was about how you say the word library because she called it library. Now in her defense, she was in kindergarten, but I was like, okay, let's correct this, you know? So, hey, hon, it's library. No, it's not. <laughs> It actually has two R's in it, library, no, uh, and just around and around. I mean, it would escalate until one of us would be in tears. <laughs> and eventually I was like, fine, it's a library and you're probably gonna be a librarian when you grow up, <laughs> whatever. But most of the arguments at our house, you know, we have five kids and it has to do with things that we don't have five of. You know, five kids, one TV remote, five kids, we don't have five bathrooms, five kids, and those two middle seats in the minivan, you know, the captain seats, actual wars have been fought over those two seats. Five kids, one puppy. I brought a picture, actually. Oh, there we go. Yeah, so, yeah, our kids fight, they argue. I'm guessing yours do as well. But here's the good news. We grow out of this, right? Like, kids fight and argue, and then as you become adults... You No, we don't. <laughs> Have you been on social media lately? Yeah, so I don't know what platforms you're on. I do know that there's fighting and arguing on those social media platforms. Arguing about politics. Arguing about Taylor Swift. <laughs> arguing still about Dan Campbell's fourth down calls that he made. Yes, arguing and fighting is still something that we deal with in our adult lives. And, uh, you know, James, this study that we're in in the book of James, James has some important things to say about fighting and arguing, quarreling. We're in chapter 4 today, and this is what he says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He just asks the question, hey, what causes these fights? What causes these arguments? And again, uh, he's not writing to us, it's for us, but he's writing to first century believers that were in his church in Jerusalem that had been scattered by persecution across the Mediterranean world. But apparently this was an issue for them. Uh, there was a relational conflict in their churches and in their families and in their friendships. And James just goes, you know, what's up with this? What causes this? And you know what, I think this is a great question for us. Because so many of us, 
I mean, there's kind of the jokes about when your kids fight, but uh, for many of us, man, relational tension and conflict just creates so much stress in our lives and just stealing the joy from your life. I mean, you think about going back to work on Monday and you can already feel the tension rising. You think about the tension in your relationship with your teenager or with your spouse. Many of us just feel really stuck in relational tension. So James just asks the question, man, what's up with this? And he, he answers for us. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? He says, look, it has everything to do with your desires, the things that you want. That's what's at the root of so much of the tension we experience in our relationships. And uh, James, for him, this is so much bigger than just arguments and fights and relationship conflict. This deal about desires, the things that we want, what we're going to discover in James' letter today is that it's so much bigger. This is about why we do the things that we do. And I'm talking about the dumb things that we do, the mistakes that we make, the choices that we make that we later look back and just go, oh, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? James says, yeah, your desires are at the root of all this stuff. And I'm excited for today because as we walk through this uh, teaching that James has for us, uh, I, just, I, I think this, this could be a turning point for many of us. This could be a turning point in your life because so many of us just are stuck, stuck in a conflict, a relationship conflict, and maybe it's your marriage. So many of us are stuck in a pattern of, of unhealthy behavior. So many of us are stuck in just a cycle of destructive decisions. And today could be a turning point because what James offers us is life-changing truth that has the potential to get us back on track and get us back in a healthy place where we're walking with God once again. So I, I just think today could be a turning point. So we're going to explore uh, the first part of chapter 4 of the book of James. Uh, Three-part conversation today, just about our desires, about relationship conflict, and why we do the dumb stuff that we do. And part one is just uh, uh, what we want, what we want. And it's the same verse that we've already read. Again, it goes like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires, your desires that battle within you? And this phrase is so interesting that he uses. Your desires that battle within you. It's like each one of us, inside of us, we have different desires that are duking it out. What, what's going on here? What's he talking about? Well, first off, every one of us has something called a sin nature. It's just this part of you that wants to do what's wrong. That's what a sin nature is. I have it, you have it, every single human being has this. And you feel this sometimes when a thought just pops into your head that's just kind of messed up and you're going, where in the world did that come from? That's probably your sin nature. We feel this when we sense a pull towards something or someone that we really should not be involved with. It's our sin nature. There's just something in you that just wants to do what's wrong. And every one of us has this. And I think just having this awareness is really helpful. That some of my desires, hey, they're not good. And it's really helpful when we think about one of the most popular cultural mantras in our uh, lives right now, which is follow your heart, live your truth. 
And the problem with this is that there are times when that is terrible advice because your heart is influenced by your sin nature. And so if you just follow along in the flow of your feelings and chase after what you want, that, that can actually be really dangerous to follow your sin nature. But James says there are, there are desires that battle. So we have the, the bad desires that are motivated by our sin nature, but all of us have good desires too. There are things that we want that are very natural and good, honorable. They're God-given desires. And I experienced this uh, just this last week, and maybe you did as well. It was Valentine's Day, and I wanted to do something special for my three daughters and for my wife. I wanted to let them know how much I care about them. So I went to Trader Joe's. I bought a bunch of bouquets of flowers, chocolate, wrote some little cards, and I gave them gifts. I'm pretty sure that desire to do something special for these ladies in my life was not motivated by my sin nature. I, I think that's probably true. And so, yes, there's good desires. There's bad desires. It's good to be aware that both are in there. But James says where things really start to go sideways in our relationships, what really causes a lot of the tension and conflict is when our desires go unmet, when we don't get what we want. Check this out, verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James is talking about unmet desires. What do you do when you don't get what you want? And he says, you know, to these people, uh, you don't get what you want, so you kill. And I'm going, whoa, like what was going on back then? And also, well, I must not be that bad because when I don't get what I want, I'm not out there killing people. But I think James is using hyperbole to get something powerful across. And that is when we don't get what we want, we have a tendency to get nasty. And we have a tendency to be destructive. And sure, you're not killing people, but your behavior and your words can be lethal in other ways. And so let me ask you an important question as we talk about our desires and the impact on our relationships and our lives. What do you do when you don't get what you want? Maybe you're the type of person that uh, kind of pulls back from the relationship. You withdraw, you get icy. And she's like, I'm not going to tell her what's bothering me. I'm not going to tell him what he did that offended me. I mean, if they can't figure it out, that's on them. But we pull back, we get icy. And yeah, we're not out there killing people, but we kill the connection in the relationship by the way that we respond to not getting what we want. So what do you do when you don't get what you want? Others of us, we don't pull back. No, <laughs> we go on the offensive. <laughs> we attack. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. And often verbally, we assault people. Maybe that's what you do when you don't get what you want. Others of us, we are really good at what I would call building a coalition, <laughs> gathering supporters. And this often happens at school. This often happens at work. Somebody does something that offends you. You don't get what you want. Your boss doesn't support your idea. And you gather supporters around you, people that are for you and against them. And some of us just have an evil genius with this. It's just really easy for us to influence people around what we want 
want and against other people. So what do you do when you don't get what you want? James is just revealing for us, look, when it comes to arguments, fights, tension in relationships, often it has to do with unmet desires. And in my experience, there's no relationship where this is more true than in a marriage. I mean, those of you who are married, you know that unmet desires, not getting what you want in your relationship with your spouse, I mean, this can cause so much trouble in a marriage. So, so let me ask you to do something, those of you who are, are married. Let me, let me give you sort of an extra credit assignment, if you will. I would love for you this week to have a conversation. Go out for coffee, go out for dinner, put the kids to bed early, and just have a conversation around two, two things. Here, we'll put them right on the screen. Number one, tell your spouse what you want. I mean, just verbalize it. Talk about what you're hoping for, your dreams, your, your desires for your family. Tell your spouse what it is that, that makes you feel connected in the relationship, what makes you feel loved. What is it that you want? Have you ever really explicitly said it to your spouse? And, I, and don't leave anything off the table. Talk about it in terms of money. Talk about it in terms of your family. Talk about it in terms of sex. I mean, just tell them what you want. I think it would be so good to just get it out on the table. And then secondly, ask your spouse, what, what do I do? How do I act when I don't get what I want? And let them tell you how they experience you when you don't get what you want. And there's only two rules for this conversation. Number one, you can't be defensive. Actually, that's the only rule. I just wanted to make it seem better. You, you can't argue, you can't defend. It's just an opportunity to learn, to be curious, and to understand. I, I just think that a shared understanding around our desires could be so helpful. So if you're married, would love for you to have this conversation this week. I think it'd be great. So James is talking about desires, unmet desires, and I just brought up this idea of marriage. And actually, that's where James goes next in his writing about our desires and how they impact uh, our decisions and our relationships. But the way he talks about marriage is probably not the way you think he's going to talk about marriage. So check this out. This is verse 4, and uh, this is part 2. It's called Where We Go. Where we go, verse four, you adulterous people. So just a chill, mild thing to say. <laughs> you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, we've said before in this series that just kind of James' style of communication, the, the letter uh, that we call James, it feels at times like a spiritual gut punch. I mean, it's intense. And this would be another example of James' intense confrontational approach. He just says, you adulterous people. And the thing is, he's not talking about your relationship with your spouse. He's not talking about your marriage. He's talking about your relationship with God. He's accusing his people of cheating on God. Now, first off, uh, what, what's going on here? First off, uh, this idea of marriage, the imagery of marriage is used throughout the scriptures to describe God's relationship to his people. So in the Old Testament, 
God calls Israel to be his special people. And it's like, I will be your God, you will be my people. And it's like vows are exchanged. And, and so we see this imagery throughout the Old Testament and we see it in the New Testament. The church is described, for example, as the bride of Christ. And so throughout the scriptures, we see marriage imagery to describe God's relationship to his people. Now, James, the context of what he's writing about here is our desires. And isn't it true that in a marriage, there are certain desires that you have that when you get married, you take a vow that you will only express those desires, you will only seek fulfillment for those desires in your marriage partner. For example, sexual desire. You, you make a promise. This is only for you. I will only seek fulfillment for these desires in you. To take those desires outside of the marriage, well, that is the definition of adultery. Now, James is connecting this idea of spiritual adultery, cheating on God. He's talking about our desires. And I think he's talking about God-given good desires. Things like a desire for purpose, a desire for love, a desire for significance that are meant to be found specifically in our relationship with God and in the way of living that he has given us, what's outlined in the scriptures. And James connects our desires and cheating on God with, you know what, that, that's friendship with the world. That's what he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Now, the world, I know this is getting complex, so we'll boil it down in just a second. The world, we talked about this in week two of James, is, is, here's how we defined it. The world is beliefs and ways of living that go against God. So it's not creation, it's not the physical world, it's beliefs and ways of living that go against God. So the idea is that these God-given desires we have, good desires, when we take those desires and seek fulfillment outside of God's design, James says that's, that's, that's spiritual adultery, that's cheating on God. So let's boil this down to just four words to make it really simple. It's this right here, right desire, wrong place. There are desires that within you that are very good, they're right. And when we commit spiritual adultery, it's just that we go to the wrong place to seek fulfillment for them. Right desire, wrong place. And James says this is at the root of so much relationship conflict, this is at the root of so many of the dumb decisions that we make, the regrettable choices that we make. Right desire, wrong place. And so just let me ask you a challenging question. Where are you tempted to do this? Where are you struggle with this? I mentioned a good godly desire of purpose. We are created for purpose. And maybe you experience that in your work. And work is good, work is a gift, but perhaps it's become unhealthy. Because at work, I mean, you get noticed, you get recognized, you're good at what you do, but, but your attachment to work has elevated above your family, it's elevated above your integrity. And it's like right desire, wrong place. God has given us a desire for intimacy. 
for deep connection, spiritual, emotional, physical connection. But some of us are seeking fulfillment for that desire in the wrong place. In a relationship that you don't belong in. In a sexual identity that's outside of God's design. In pornography. Right desire, wrong place. God's put a desire in all of us for security, for for safety. We all feel this. But where are you seeking to find fulfillment for that desire? Many of us, it's through control. Control all the variables. Control all the people. That's how things will be safe. Uh, Others of us experience this in our relationship with money. It's like we want to be generous, but we just can't. Because to give that money away, well, then I can't have it in savings. And it's not because you're greedy. It's because you're scared. You're scared. And it just, right desire, wrong place. I just wonder, where do you struggle with this? And James uses, like, intense language, doesn't he? You adulterous people. It's like you're cheating on God. And, And some of you... Man, some of you have experienced infidelity in your marriage. You know how painful that is, how destructive that is. It's just like, wow. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been a few moments in my life where I have just recognized, it's kind of hit me square in the face, that what James is talking about here is what I'm doing. Where it's like I'm I'm chasing after some desire that's no good or I'm seeking fulfillment for a good desire but in the wrong way and it just hits you. And I've just had a a few moments where it's like, wow, I'm, I'm off track. I am wandering from God. And something that I struggled with the most in that space, especially when I was younger, is how does God respond to you when you're in that place? When you just recognize, man, I'm, I'm blowing it. Like, how does God feel about you? And for the longest time, I just felt like if I were to turn around and kind of go back to God's way and kind of show up, as it were, back to God, that he would just kind of be like, well, it's about time. And just disappointed, frustrated, angry, can't believe you would do that. That's just, I don't know why exactly, that's just what I thought God, that's how I thought he would respond to me. And I don't know maybe if that's how you feel and maybe sometimes that keeps you from coming back to him. But what I've learned over time through the scriptures is that's not how God responds. And it's scriptures like the one we're about to look at in James that that has helped me see God more accurately. Because how does God respond to us? When we go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm off track, I'm chasing desires I shouldn't be, but I want to return. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. I love that. He gives us more grace. I mean, two words, I just want to put them on the screen because they're so powerful. More grace. We're not talking about initial grace. We're not talking about when you place your trust in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for you when you're forgiven, you know, saved, uh, restored to relationship with God. We're talking about after that, 
when you're in a space where you're, you're wandering from God and you're not doing what you're supposed to do, how does God respond to you then? James says, more grace. It's like more forgiveness, more cleansing, more restoration. And, and the picture that comes to mind for me is this. This is a painting, and uh, it's the story of the prodigal son. The story that Jesus told about this son who takes all his dad's money, he goes off to a faraway land, and he wastes it all on wild living. I mean, makes an absolute mess of his life, hits rock bottom, and finally realizes, man, I've blown it. I've got to go back to my father. And so he goes back. And you would think that the father would just, you know, well, it's about time. I knew you'd come back eventually. But the picture that Jesus gives us is this, of this dad who's been looking out watching for his son day after day. And when he finally sees him on the horizon, he just sprints to him, throws his arms around him, and throws a party for him. And I love that because in the ancient world, old, respectable dudes never ran. It was undignified. But Jesus gives us this picture, and to me, that's what more grace looks like. That when you decide, okay, I'm off track, I'm chasing my desires, I'm seeking fulfillment for these desires in the wrong place, I, I need to get back. That, this is how God greets us and welcomes us. And I just wonder if you needed to hear those two words today, more grace. He meets you with more grace. And so it's possible today could be a turning point. It's possible that today could be the day where you recognize, okay, I'm wandering I'm, not, I'm, I'm chasing after the desires and I need to come back. First thing I need you to know is this is how God will respond to you. More grace. But the question is, like, what, what steps do you take? What exactly do you do to get back in step with God, walking with God again when you've been wandering uh, in, in unhealthy ways? What do you actually do? Give me some action steps. And that's how James closes this section on desires and relationship tension. He gives us some steps. So let me put a picture in your mind here of a path. I just want you to think in terms of this is the path back to walking closely with God when you've been wandering. And so part three today, I'm just calling it how to get back. I'm going to read three verses from James' letter, and then we're going to pick out four steps and how you get back to walking closely with God. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So this is the path back. Let's pick out four steps along the way. First, submit yourselves then to God. The first word, the first step is the word submit. You see, at the very core of following Jesus is this willingness to say, you're in charge. And what happens when we go wandering and chasing our desires is we go, I'm in charge. <laughs> this is what I want. I'm going to go get it. And you know what? I'm going to put you off to the side here, God. Well, okay, the first step back is to say, okay, I was wrong. You're in charge. I am submitting all of my desires to you. All my decisions, I am submitting them to your leadership. You've got to put Jesus back on the throne in your life. This is step one on the path back to walking closely with God. Submit. Then James says this, resist the devil and he will flee 
from you. James introduces God's enemy, the devil, Satan, whose purpose, whose goal it is to oppose God's leadership in the world and to oppose God's leadership in your life. And the way that he does that is through tempting you through your desires. And James gives us a word, an action step here, and it's the word resist. We have to resist these temptations. In other words, don't just accept your desires. Don't just follow along, but resist. Now, I like this word because in the ancient Greek language that the New Testament was originally written in, it's a military word. It's the idea of like stand and fight. Do not run away, but hold the line in a battle. That's what it means to resist. And it reminds me uh, one of my favorite movies, many of you will know this, Lord of the Rings. When Gandalf, I, I got a picture here. When Gandalf stands up to this demon, this Balrog, and he resists him so that his friends can all escape. And it's like Gandalf, he has his staff and he slams it down to the ground and he says, you shall not pass. I felt like this was a pretty good impersonation. <laughs> I did work on it a little bit. I thought about growing out the beard, but I didn't. Anyway, that's not helpful. <clears throat> Resist. If you want to get back to walking closely with God again, you got to stop just going along with your desires. You've got to resist them. Take the time to interpret them through the lens of Scripture. Now, something really practical here. In my life, in my experience, I am no good at resisting without help. For me, resisting is always a team sport. I require, and I suspect that you do as well, accountability. This is one of the big reasons why I'm part of a small group. So that I can say, guys, this is what I'm struggling with. This is the temptation I'm facing. This is the desire I'm wrestling with. So that the next week they can go, hey, how's that going? So that in between our meetings, like, they will text me and go, hey, how's that, how's that going? It's, listen, I think we, it's a team sport. If you actually want to make progress here, you've got to pull somebody else in and say, hey, I need you to keep me accountable here. So that's the word, resist. First submit, second resist. There's a third step on the path back to walking closely with God. James says, come near to God and he will come near to you. I, I like this. I like this a lot. It's a promise that when we move toward God, that he will move toward us. Come near to him, he will come near to you. And so the word I wanna give you here is the word pursue. To pursue him. Pursue him in his word. Pursue him among his people. Pursue him in his church. Pursue him through prayer. Pursue him through worship, but move toward God. And the promise is when you do that, he will move toward you. And there's something so powerful here because the real energy, the real power in resisting our temptation, it doesn't come from our inner strength. It comes from our connection with him because Jesus is really the power source here. And so if you want to get back on track with God, okay, you're in charge. Okay, I'm going to resist and, and carve out space and time in your life to pursue him in relationship. The fourth and final step, he says, wash your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is what we would call repentance language. It's this idea of coming to God with sorrow over what you've been doing. You know, my wife and I, as I said, we've got these five kids, and they do fight and argue. And when they do, and when they're mean to each other, one of the things we want them to do is to apologize to each other. Hey, tell your sister that you're sorry. And when it's like, sorry, it's like, okay, you didn't mean it. There's no sorrow there. We want to see sorrow because that shows us that you really mean it. But also, what good does it do to say sorry and then to keep doing the same thing and hurting your sister's feelings? No, it requires change as well. Real sorrow leads to change, and that's what repentance is all about. When James says, wash your hands, purify your hearts, he's talking about this idea of repentance. So the fourth word is repent. It literally means to turn around and go a different way. So it's, I've been chasing after this desire. God, I'm sorry, I know that this is wrong. And you turn and you move in a different desire. You walk uh, God's path instead of your own path. And this is a crucial idea, sorrow that leads to change. So if you've been wandering, if you've been chasing your desires, how do you get back to walking closely with God? You, you give him leadership. You submit. You resist the temptation. You move toward God in relationship and you repent. And if you do these things, here's the promise in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's exactly what we're talking about. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. It's a phrase that means victory. It's a phrase that means restoration. It's a phrase that means favor, like blessing. If we humble ourselves before the Lord in these ways, he will lift us up. So at the start of my time, I said, uh, you know, today could be a turning point. Because so many of us are stuck. Stuck in relationship conflicts, stuck in a pattern of bad behavior, stuck in a cycle of destructive decisions. This could be a turning point. And I just wonder, is today the day that you get unstuck? By returning to God. And just two words I want to remind you of, more grace. More grace. And how you engage that is through submitting, resisting, pursuing, and repenting. And so if you need a conversation today, if you, if you need somebody to pray for you today, if you just need to unpack some things that you're going through, at every one of our spaces, there's going to be people, ministry leaders down front who would love to talk with you, uh, pray for you, get you connected to resources that might help you in your journey. But I just challenge you, today could be the day, the day where it's a turning point, where you move in a new direction, a good, life-giving direction with your God. So let me pray for you as we close. Heavenly Father, these two words, more grace. God, one of the great things about your scriptures is they reveal who you are. They reveal your character to us. And God, I just uh, 
blown away by the fact that when we get off track, which we do so often, that you just meet us with kindness, with love, with forgiveness. God, you are unbelievably good to us. God, I just lift up my brothers and sisters who are stuck, just not in a great place right now. God, would you give them the courage to take steps towards you? God, would you bring people into their life to encourage and challenge them and guide them? God, just pray for freedom. Pray for victory. Pray for peace. God, we're so incredibly grateful for who you are. And uh, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. Look forward to next weekend when we get to open the scriptures once again. We'll see you.